Hi, I'm Jay Caruso, and this is Closer Consideration. What is civility? What do you think about when you think about the word civility? Merriam-Webster defines civility in two different ways. One defines it as civilized conduct. Somebody, there's an example, is there's a bemoan the decline of civility in our politics. Another explanation is a polite act or expression. My guest for this episode is Teresa Bejan. She's a professor of political theory at the University of Oxford and author of the book, Mayor Civility. And she says that civility goes beyond politeness and actually argues that the two of those concepts are different. And she writes about what it means to live in a civil society, the history of civility. And what we think of today as unprecedented in terms of civility is really not. And she'll explain that coming up. This podcast is brought to you by Ricochet.com. Ricochet.com is a place for conservative conversation and community, as well as plenty of podcasts. You should go to Ricochet.com, look at the offerings, look at all the podcasts they have. If you join and sign up for a membership, you get your first month free. So if you go over to Ricochet.com slash join, you can go ahead and do that and see what they have to offer. You can listen to this podcast at ricochet.com, but you can also subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Teresa Bejan, thank you for joining me here on uh, Closer Consideration. Appreciate you being on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, so you are the author of the book, Mere Civility, Disagreement, and the Limits of Toleration. So I'm going to start with the obvious question. Uh, if somebody were to ask you, Teresa, what, what is civility? Can you kind of explain that? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And, and honestly, I don't get asked that question nearly as much as I, I, I wish I did. So I'm very happy to uh happy to define it. I mean, one of the things I point to in the book and sort of my public speaking around this issue is just how how little sense we have, um, even though we talk about civility a lot, how little sense we have of what that actually, what it actually means, it, let alone what it requires. So I like to define civility as a conversational virtue. So it's like other conversational virtues, like respectfulness, like decorum, like politeness. But it's also unlike those virtues in, in a couple of ways. One way is that um, civility is sort of minimal and negative in character in a way that those other virtues aren't. We can think about this um, as mere civility, which is obviously where I get the title from the book when we think of, oh, well, you know, I'm furious with my ex, but I can, you know, but we're at a stage where we can be merely civil, right? So that expresses the sense that civility is a kind of low bar uh, of behavior in, in our conversations. And then secondly, sort of specifically, it seems that when we appeal to, appeal to civility, we're not talking about just any conversation, we're talking about disagreements in particular. So right there, you know, you have this sense of, okay, well, civility is a conversational virtue, it's important when we're disagreeing in particular, and it's kind of the minimal bar standard of behavior that we're expected to meet. And then the final element of civility is the uh, question of its scope or sphere of application. And there I appeal to etymology and just point out, well, look, the word, the English word civility comes from the Latin civitas, um, which means civil society or state. So civility seems to be a standard of conversational behavior and disagreement that we expect from members of the same civil society. So we might think of those as citizens, we might think of those as kind of neighbors or denizens, but in any case, those of us who share a civil society together can be expected to be merely civil when we are disagreeing with our co-citizens or neighbors. Okay, you you said something about politeness, and I I was reading some stuff you've written, and you said sometimes people confuse it with politeness. And I mean, I could, I could, hold a door open for someone and that's a polite act but as they're going through i could say hurry up dumbass i mean and at that point i'm not being very <laughs> civil to them even though i'm still holding the door open for them and i and when i was when i was kind of reading through this before we had started to speak where just kind of give me a little bit more give us a little bit more detail into where politeness and civility kind of diverge 
Yeah, I think that there's uh, a historical moment when they converge, um, and maybe it'd be helpful to start there. So if we look at 18th century discourses of uh, civilité and politesse in French, and of course these French debates feed into English and Anglophone debates, um, we begin to get a sense of civility and politeness as features of civilization or civilized societies. And there we, we get a clear sense of civility coming in as a more aspirational standard. So you, it, we're no longer merely civil, we have to be fully civilized. Um, and I think that what attracted me, so as a historian of political thought, I sort of decided to eschew the 18th century and look directly to the 17th century, which is a moment before these kinds of concepts came together, because I think that we preserve this distinction even in, in modern discussions of civility and politeness. So on the one hand, civility, you know, to be civil could be a synonym for being polite, but on the other hand, they come apart when we talk about accusations of incivility, because calling someone uncivil is somehow way, way worse. <laughs> than calling them impolite because it implies that they are somehow beyond the pale. They don't belong to our society. They're no longer a member in good standing. And so I think it's that element of exclusion that still characterizes civility talk that I think helps us to see the way these things come apart. Um, but as to your particular example about, you know, hurry up, dumbass. I mean, for me, what's interesting is to point to, okay, well, where does the incivility lie in that? So I agree with you, it's uncivil and not only impolite, but for me, the incivility would lie in the way in which hurry up, dumbass seems to be exclusionary. It's sort of putting that person beyond, beyond the pale of kind of a, a, a sort of good faith disagreement or, you know, a disagreement in which you could be partners in good standing. Um, and so that for me is the core of incivility. It's kind of putting an end to the possibility of disagreement between you. And that, that brings up an interesting point. Uh, you're, you're historian. You're, you're not the, the, uh, before we, before we went live, you were talking about how you're not a political person, but obviously civility plays into the political culture. And if and and not asking you, I'm, I don't want you to take sides or on anything because this is something. This is something that is just is 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 entrenched in our political culture these days. Uh, there is a what I would call a, a constant. Uh, is constantly they are people are questioning each other's motives, like a mm -hmm. policy that you may disagree with. You may disagree with it on the merits. But your opponent is going to accuse you of something different. So if you say, we, we don't need this program, we don't need to spend this kind of money on X. And somebody will say, well, that's because you want to do Y. And you don't agree with this because you're a rotten person or you hate this or you loathe that. It's always, these, it's, it's, it's always attacking someone's motives. Does that fall under something of, of, of does that fall under the umbrella of civility where if, We'll say a perfect example. We want to. We want to. Politician A wants to lower taxes. Politician B says, "Well, that's because you don't. You you only care about rich people, uh, rather than debating in good faith about the merits of reducing taxation for for whatever reason." So, how, where does that fall in there when you see politicians kind of doing that back and forth to each other? Yeah, well, it, it fits in certainly, it, it, but it fits in maybe in a in a in a slightly counterintuitive way. Um, so just to kind of start, I, you know, I'm a historian of political thought, but I'm also a political theorist. So I am interested in trying to get clear on what the concepts and categories that we use to make sense of our political experiences, what they mean and also what they do. And so here I am really interested in kind of uh, rhetoric, right? So just rhetorical actions. And so in the example that you've given where politicians address the man as opposed to the argument. Uh, you know, this used to be known as an, as, a, as an argumentative fallacy, namely the fallacy of the ad hominem. So it addressing it to the man. Um, and now, as you say, it's extremely common. But it's uncivil in a particular way. So I don't think it's uncivil in itself to call one's political opponent a kind of 
you know, to, to, to in, insult them personally or call them a name. You know, I don't think that's necessarily uncivil. I think that in a way that can be an essential kind of rhetorical tool in, in the course of a civil disagreement. Um, but the way that that sort of those rhetorical moves work as tools of incivility is precisely when that kind of rhetorical naming slips into a persistent and pervasive othering of that person. Again, that says you're not worth disagreeing with at all, right? I'm no longer, and you can sort of see this, especially um, when so much of our national politics takes place on Twitter, where you can always sense that moment where the audience of the disagreements, the audience of what a particular politician is saying is no longer sort of their opponent, the person that they claim to be addressing. It's the audience in the stands, you know? So we talk about the prevalence of signaling in our politics, where instead of actually engaging in a disagreement with our opponent, what we're doing is we're signaling to those on our side already that we're on the right side. And so there I think is where the incivility lies. And I would agree with you that it's a huge problem and that plenty of, um, plenty of disagreements uh, in, in American politics and British politics today are, uncivil on my definition. But I do want to be really clear that for me, it's not about getting caught up on whether people are calling each other names. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's sometimes it's perfectly appropriate to be calling each other names. And that can be part of the kind of rough and tumble, uh, pugilistic nature of political disputes. What I'm interested in is that much more subtle sense of exclusion and othering that then sort of undermines the possibility of the disagreement continuing. That's an uh, that's interesting. So let me give you an example, and I'll and 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 you'll have to forgive me because I'm speaking from a point of ignorance about your work. So this is why I'm 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 asking these questions because I find it fascinating. So in in talking about your example where you're where you're kind of projecting towards someone else. So if you uh, I was having a conversation with someone and we were discussing how uh, congressional hearings have become somewhat pointless uh, mm. in that the members aren't necessarily interested in getting information from the people that they're questioning but they're more interested in playing to the camera that mm, yeah. to to create a it, it is much better for someone to say something loud and outlandish and almost insulting to as a result of being able to have their staff create a clip that they can then use to put on social media on twitter or on youtube or something like that is that is that example of kind of what you're talking about yeah, absolutely. I think that fits in really well. Um, again, you might say, oh, well, look, this is a, these kind of fora in, in Congress and congressional hearings are great examples of opponents coming together and actually confronting, confronting each other and disagreeing. But I think that, as you point out, actually, that's rarely what's going on. And even um, the uh, publicity there leads to a kind of disengagement. You're actually not addressing the person right in front of you. You're speaking to people in the stands at home. Um, yeah, I think that's an excellent example. And it, you know, this isn't something that flicks only politicians who have, you know, cameras at the ready and social media teams. I think it really characterizes more and more how even everyday citizens talk to each other and indeed people like me, um, academics with Twitter accounts, I think it characterizes how we interact with one another. And I, and I do think it's, um, um, it's pretty deleterious uh, when it comes to actually, you know, having having arguments and really understanding what the disagreement is, let alone winning the argument. And just to kind of stay on the on the social media uh, kick, uh, and I'm I'm going to let you explain this. You've uh, people have said that social media is is a cause of a lot of incivility in today's culture, but but you said. Uh, you have a story, an anecdote that you bring up that says eh, it goes back a lot further than that. Kind of explain what you were talking about. Yeah, well, again, so this is where I put on my historian hat, and um, you know, and I often tease my students about it, but I think it's a, it's a, it's important to tease them on this. You know, students often come in and say, "Oh, this problem is unprecedented." You know, you often get this in, in the media as well. This problem's unprecedented, and, and I always say, "Well, no." Uh, you know, with Aristotle and Ecclesiastes, I will point out that there is nothing new under the sun, and indeed, <laughs> versions of the problem that we might call the crisis of incivility. I mean, these are really, really old. I mean. People have been worrying about um, the battle of words, as they call it, pugno warbarum in Latin, 
I've been worried about this since since you know the Roman the Roman Republic. The question is um, what's distinctive about this particular crisis, i.e., the crisis that seems to have arisen in the wake of social media, and are there historical precedents? And as you say, I, I do point my work to a particular historical precedent, which I call the first modern crisis of civility, and it's precisely the post-Reformation debates. Um, in Europe that, that coincided with quite a lot of religious violence in Europe as well. But the sort of the, the battle in wor of words there was, was facilitated by a new communications technology, namely the printing press. And so in popular writing, I, you know, I, I've compared uh, Martin Luther to the original Twitter troll, but I think that there's really <laughs> something quite deep, deep and true about that. And by looking to historical precedents like the Reformation, I'm not saying that the crisis of civility isn't a problem, but I am saying, nevertheless, it's it's a precedented problem. And so there are resources, um, intellectual and, and otherwise, in the past for us to look to when we think about how we might deal with this problem. Yeah, and, and but I, if someone asked you, and I, I'll, I will ask you, is you <laughs> you wouldn't disagree that Social media has probably has likely exacerbated the issue because of which the speed of which you can you can respond to someone. Uh, you recently did a and then I'll just I'll kind of you recently did a thread about the word problematic, and I am certain that if I went and looked at every tweet in that thread and saw some of the replies, there's probably some ugly ones in there. Uh, simply mm -hmm. because it, it allows somebody, particularly in an anonymous way, especially on Twitter, to just say whatever they want. And, uh, and you know, unless you're kind of filtering that stuff out, you're going to see it. And sometimes it's ugly. Um, at the same time, however, if I'm not mistaken, you correct me if I'm wrong, it obviously the thread caught the, 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 the eyes of somebody at the Atlantic and they asked you to, to write a full-blown piece about it. And so where... And so, I, it, first of all, do you, do you agree that it, first question? Do you do you agree that social media has exacerbated the issue? And and second, um, is there any way to kind of get beyond that? I mean, what? And I'm not asking you to come up with solutions. I just want to understand how you're thinking about it and where you see the role of social media as part of this problem in terms, especially as you relate it to what you said earlier about mere civility, not necessarily mm. full civility, if that's a proper term. So. All right. Yeah. Polytests or civilization. So, um, yeah, I think when I started out, so the, the book that you mentioned in the introduction that started as, as many uh, academic monographs do is my dissertation. And I think that when I started writing the dissertation, I was much more skeptical about the kind of um, quite alarmist claims I was hearing at the time about social media and how disruptive it had been. I, you know, I've now come around to say, well, no, 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 actually social media is really disruptive. And I can point to the concrete ways in which it exacerbates incivility on my account. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned the, the problem of speed, right? People can react just instantaneously. They're not sort of forced to think and reflect on the nature of their disagreement. I would also point to the um, indeterminacy of audience. So the fact that on Twitter, you can be addressing sort of infinite audiences at once uh, is really tricky for civility because we can't know uh, with any reliability what the sort of boundaries of the audience we're addressing are. So something that might be civil in one context might be really uncivil in a different context. And you know, so there's obvious confusion and um, you know, things like retweeting and quote tweeting lead to the um, the amplification of our words to audiences that we never even imagined or intended to to read them. Um, there's also the problem, again, you alluded to it, of anonymity. So the fact that people don't speak under their own name on on platforms like Twitter leads, um, there's good empirical evidence for this, that it leads to uh, abuse. Um, and yeah, so I mean, there are lots of reasons why uh, social media and again Twitter's the platform I know best at the moment because it seems that it's part of my job to be on there and I sort of tear my hair about that but you know what <laughs> but nevertheless I, I, I accept it um, is so what I would say I, what I, I put my finger on the real issue is as being the ease with which we can um, find and address ourselves to 
like-minded audiences. So one of the things that I point to historically is that Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century is really good. So he just points out like, look, there's a reason why disagreeable is a synonym in English for unpleasant, right? Because disagreement is experienced as unpleasant. To be disagreed with is kind of insulting because it implies that you've reasoned incorrectly or that you're kind of dumb. Um, so, so conversely, there's a reason agreeable is a synonym for pleasant because it's nice to agree with people. It leads to a sense of sort of well-being and warmness and belonging. And the problem is with social media that algorithmically we're being fed uh, to the like-minded and attracted to the like-minded just, you know, and so we end up then I think experiencing disagreement as all the more offensive, all the more threatening because we're more and more used to being exposed only to those, um, uh, you know, to, to, with whom we share another, this is a good Greek word for this, homonoia or like-mindedness, right? So we're in these kind of like-minded communities and we experience um, uh contradiction and controversy and disagreement as all the more threatening. And I think that is fueling some of this language that you get today about sort of uh, political or intellectual disagreements as being a kind of existential threat, i.e. so-and-so is denying my right to exist. And you're like, no, well, so-and-so is just disagreeing with you. But I think that we do have the sense of our of being bound up in like-minded communities and our sense of self is being really secured by the inviability of those, uh, of those communities. But I mean, just to just to um, address briefly the point about, yeah, my uh, thread about the word problematic on Twitter, what actually surprised me about that was it's by far the most viral thread I've ever done, but it also had the most uniformly positive reception. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. yeah, thanks. But That's good to I, see. I think part, yeah, well, I mean, we can turn to that. I don't want to preempt any other questions no, no, you have, no, no, but I, I, that really did strike me. Yeah, well, I just think that I, I think people on all sides of a host of political or ideological issues are frustrated by these tendencies I've been describing of the kind of impossibility of disagreement. Um, the sort of a real a strong and anti-intellectual tendency that basically says, well, no, what's incumbent upon you is to condemn someone before you actually had the time and space to understand their arguments. Um, I think that I, I think that's not I, I think that that's actually shared um, by plenty of people who would describe and understand themselves to be on on sort of you know polar opposite sides politically and and so I took a lot of um, I took heart from that in fact um, sure there were I mean there, you know there were one of two responses that were basically amounted to well it's easy for you as a white woman to say of course <laughs> that the word problematic is problematic. But I, you know, I far fewer than I'd anticipated, and of course, I'm a big girl. I can, I can handle, I can handle a little incivility. Indeed, I think that's um that's part and parcel of what it means to be civil is is tolerating, is putting up with other people's incivility, and you know, and remaining committed to doing better myself. Yeah, that's something that that brings up a good point because that's something I've struggled with, uh, or I used to struggle with a lot on Twitter. I was one of those people that would go and respond to every response, and um, it be, it became a situation where it was like I was making myself miserable by constantly just feeding into this. You know, there's kind of a loop almost that social media has, where they just want you to continually engage, 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 and finally, for the last probably the last several years, I've have like really restricted what I see in terms of, of, of responses. I don't get any, I don't have near, no notifications show up on my phone anymore. And so it, mm -hmm. it's a much better experience as a result. Um, you, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the, about the history of this. And, and I read an article you had wrote and I, it, it probably appears in your book as well, but tell us a little bit about, uh, Roger Williams and, and the experience around civility surrounding him. I thought that was a fascinating uh, thing. And, and and please take your time. I mean, we're not in any rush here, but if you are, I mean, you can rush through it. But I know it takes a little, there's a little bit to go through, but I thought it was still a uh, an interesting uh, kind of example of what you're, what you're talking about. Oh, I, I'm so pleased. Um, again, you know, if only more people said to me, Teresa, tell me more about Roger Williams, you know, how happy I would be. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I 
think so one of the things I wanted to do in the book was just kind of make explicit who the exemplars were in various uh, theories of civility that I was recovering. And I mean, spoiler alert, generally when someone's talking about civility, they're holding themselves up as an exemplar. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I just think that we should put that, um, we should make that explicit as opposed to leaving it implicit. But in any case, so in my own sort of thinking about civility and theorizing civility, I happened upon one particular exemplar that I've now held up in, in the book and in various public speaking and writing engagements um, of who I think is just the, the model of mere civility on my argument. And that is, as you say, a, a man called Roger Williams. Um, he may be familiar to any listeners from New England and particularly Rhode Island, but um, basically Williams was one of the many English Puritans in the 17th century who fled persecution in old England uh, and uh, came to New England in the hope that he would then be able to uh, worship in peace and more particularly to be part of a kind of society of saints that is a sort of like-minded community of good, pure Christians living together and worshiping in harmony. And again, I mean, long story short, uh, Williams did not find Boston to be a society of saints. Indeed, he was scandalized by a lot of what he was seeing there. And he made himself pretty obnoxious from, from the word go by being a proper evangelical Christian that is evangelizing and kind of calling out the sins of his fellow Puritans in New England. And eventually he gets himself banished um, and he ends up fleeing uh, Massachusetts Bay and being sheltered by various American Indian tribes, the Wampanoag and the Narragansett. And ultimately he founds a colony of his own called uh, Providence Plantations or Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. And um, in Rhode Island, what really stuck out to me is the fact that Williams manages to found the most tolerant society the world had ever seen, almost accidentally. So basically in, in Rhode Island, what ends up happening is people who've been persecuted or exiled from the other New English colonies just end up in Rhode Island because they have nowhere else to go. It, it, starts being called the latrine of New England <laughs> by some of its neighbors. And you get that sense. It's the sort of sewage system. All the people who've been rejected, the cast-offs and castaways end up in Rhode Island. And nevertheless, from these very unpromising materials, mainly evangelicals like Williams himself, who just couldn't shut up about how wrong their neighbors were, but also American Indians, famously the first Jewish synagogue was in uh, was in Providence, or sorry, in, uh, in Rhode Island. Um, he manages to found a kind of a civil society out of these ostensibly uncivil materials. And on top of that, it's a society without an established church. Um, and so I argue that the conception of civility that's put into practice in Rhode Island is a conception of mere civility. It's saying, well, everybody has an equal right to proselytize for their faith and anathematize their opponents. Nevertheless, we remain members of the same civil society. Um, Williams had a great line. He said, one must go out of the world before one, if one, uh, one, one must go out of the world entirely if one would not keep converse with idolaters. Uh, the idea is that in this world, it's a fallen world and it's part of our condition in this fallen world to live side by side with sinners. And so our duty as Christians on William's argument was, well, we have a duty as Christians to admonish them, to evangelize, to condemn their sins. Nevertheless, we have a duty as citizens to live together and maintain the ship of state together. That is great. I wanted to, uh, there's a, uh, you had written, this was a, a piece you had written in the Washington Post going back uh, to 2017. And again, turning back to politics here for a second, because I, I, I wanted to get an understanding about this because this is this is fascinating to me in terms of political discussion. Uh, after Donald Trump was elected, essentially, the, it, it, and again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but reading through the piece, basically, it's a, it, it, you're saying is that uh, you're kind of arguing against the, the use of calling for civility by both 
Trump supporters and his opponents as a way to silence those who disagree with them. And, is it, and mm. we're seeing that. And we kind of we touched on this before, but this will get into I think probably once get into it a little bit more deeply is that it's not a matter of I, I spoke about motives, but is it also a measure of trying to get people to shut up? Uh, if you, mm-hmm. I think a perfect example of this, even outside of the world of politics, is is Dave Chappelle, who just released another Netflix uh, special, and I wrote about his special that he released four years ago, where he came under criticism for jokes that he told about transgender people, and uh, and and he's he's getting the same heat again. They're saying it's it's bigotry and and it's. I don't know if anybody's used the word uncivil, but would that fit in with there with the, with the criticism that is heaped upon him like that as more of a means of trying to get him to silence him without saying that we should silence him? And is that the same thing that you saw with respect to Trump and his supporters and opponents? Mm. So uh, again, I think my answer to this is uh, maybe a little counter counterintuitive for some of your listeners, but I, I think the distinctions I'm going to draw are really important. By all means. Um, <laughs> so, Be counterintuitive uh, all you want. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly <laughs> okay with that. So I think that I'm, um, let's take the, uh, yeah, let's take the Dave Chappelle example. So um, there's a negative response to his latest comedy special. Commentators say, well, these jokes are, transphobic they're bigoted uh they're sexist you know all of these uh all of the kind of ist ick words that um we use to, to condemn people as well as their positions um and then there are also calls for netflix to pull the special right now i think yeah so i agree with you entirely this this case is is extremely germane to my point and actually helps helps point out some of the distinctions that i would make so um I would say that, uh, again, calling Dave Chappelle un, un, uh, transphobic, calling him uh, sexist, all these things, that for me is not in itself uncivil, right? I do think there comes a point in a disagreement or a conversation where you're calling Dave Chappelle un, uh, transphobic not to change Dave Chappelle's mind, <laughs> rather to signal to those on your own side of the issue that they better not associate with Dave Chappelle. Um, but I think in practice, that line is really difficult to draw. And it's not the sort of line that is going to be, you know, theoretic. I don't think it's, we can formulate it theoretically. I think it's a matter of kind of prudence or practical judgment. Um, the other thing, however, the sort of calling for Dave Chappelle's special to be pulled because it's transphobic, whatever, et cetera, that I think is highly uncivil because it's precisely trying to silence, suppress and exclude uh, a disagreeable view as opposed to having the disagreement, having the argument. Um, there's a case here in the UK, which again, I think is relevant. It's the case of a philosopher at the University of Sussex named um, Kathleen Stock. And Kathleen Stock has become extremely controversial in the UK because she's seen as being kind of one of the foremost trans-exclusionary radical feminists, uh, also known as TERFs, which itself has kind of become a term of abuse, Um, but basically uh, feminist theorists who, uh, I think actually the the various commitments uh, and and sort of policy views of people called TERFs are actually, you know, quite subtle and, you know, I'm not going to get into that. But basically uh, the idea, well, this person is transphobic and therefore, this has now uh, spurred a student campaign to um, put up signs around campus and put pressure on the university to fire Kathleen Stock. Right? So, I mean, my position on this is to say, look, there's nothing uncivil in say about calling Kathleen Stock a transphobe. I think it's probably rhetorically not very useful. I don't think it's likely to, you know, persuade Kathleen Stock that she's wrong. <laughs> but you know, I, I think you know, students have a have a have a right to to say that. And if they think that her arguments are transphobic, I think it sort of follows that she herself may be a transphobe, or though she may not be, she might be making those arguments for, for other reasons. Um, 
just as I think Kathleen Stock and her supporters uh, have the right and certainly should come back against his accusations and say Kathleen Stock is not a transphobe. Look at, you know, here's all this evidence of why she's not a transphobe. Because um, I think you can actually have an argument about whether or not Kathleen Stock is a transphobe. Again, you know, not I'm not weighing in on either side of, of that of that particular example. I'm just giving an example of the kind of the role that name calling might play in having a substantive disagreement. But calls for Kathleen Stock to be fired and certainly putting pressure on the university to do so. Well, I, I think that's obviously a violation. Uh, it's not a violation. Sorry, that's the wrong word. It's an abuse of our freedom of speech to silence, suppress, exclude those who disagree with us. And it just seems to me that's clearly a, a, an abuse of the freedom of speech. John Stuart Mill is really good on this and on liberty about why that's an abuse of the freedom of speech. Oh, yeah. And I think that um, we do our students a disservice, huge disservice, when we fail to point out this extremely important, important distinction to them. Um, you don't win an argument. I mean, it's, you might win an argument in the schoolyard by bullying your opponent till they sort of start crying or go home or just shut up. But that's not how you win an argument among adults. And what you see in the Kathleen Stock case, and I think as well in the Dave Chappelle case, is that these attempts to silence backfire. They backfire spectacularly because those who are not already sort of on a side of this issue become extremely put off by what they perceive to be bullying. And so I just, I think it's not in the interests of, of the movements that are currently embracing this tactic. It's certainly not in the interest of, of universities to, you know, be, be, be giving in to these, to these student mobs. Certainly it's not in Netflix interest to take Dave Chappelle down. They're going to give him another special on the basis of the backlash. You know, so I just, I think we're, it's both sort of wrong in principle and it's also wrong sort of in, in, in for prudential reasons, for practical reasons. Um, and I think that, you know, in any case, again, a long answer to your question, but I do see it as my role as a political theorist to kind of spell out the reasons why this is wrong and, and, to, and to, keep, to keep pointing it out. And doesn't that, wouldn't that also create kind of a, you, you said it makes things worse, and does it make it worse in the sense that there are going to be people who will push back even harder on that? So, like, they're going to get in someone's face even more as a result of what they Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Well, you see, you see this in the radicalization of the kind of of the of the transgender debate in the UK, where both sides, I think, have become extremely radicalized and impute the very worst possible motives to their opponents and spend most of their time sort of policing whether or not someone is on their side or not, as opposed to, again, actually addressing themselves to persuading those on the sidelines who haven't made up their minds. Um, and so, you know, just go back to my previous answer about Roger Williams. I mean, I'm not, um, you know, I was raised kind of culturally Catholic. I, I, I joke I was raised lapsed Catholic, um, but I think that pretty much describes me. I'm not an evangelical Christian. It's not something that that appeals to me in any way theologically, but it appeals to me greatly politically. I think basically in a democracy, our job is to convince people and create coalitions uh, and the you know you see it described as the politics of purity and i think that's right i think it's really bad politics i think it's good politics if your goal is to sort of raise lots of money or you know enrich yourself or raise your own profile right but if what you actually care about is making your society more just i think it's really disastrous um and again i think that people like me have a have a duty to sort of teach <laughs> teach our students and model model ourselves kind of what good politics might look like. Right. And getting back to what you said, going back to the start of our conversation where you spoke about mayor civility. So I'm just reading from something that you wrote here. Uh, it says, so what does mayor civility demand of us that we remain committed to talking and disagreeing and not to pull our punches, although we may not land them all at once. This also suggests, and this is the, the key point here, I think is that if you're talking about civility as a way to avoid having a difficult disagreement, you're doing it wrong. And do you think that that mm -hmm. plays into a lot of it, that people are just afraid to have these conversations out and open, that instead of they choose to avoid the subject and go on to go on the attack on silencing the person who they disagree with? Is that do I have that right? Is that what you're kind of getting at here? Yeah, I think I'm um, so 
different kinds of people have different tolerances for conflict. Um, I'm sort of a, a conflict averse person who's found myself in a, in a, in a discipline and in a kind of public position where um, I've really had to get over that and toughen up. Um, but there are people who actually really enjoy conflict uh, and sort of get off on it. And I wouldn't, I would never want to theorize civility in such a way that I erase the distinctions between different people and different dispositions, et cetera. But I, I do think the um, basic psychological propensity I pointed to, this idea, this propensity for preferring the company of the like-minded is pretty universal among human beings. And so the silencing works um, in, in two of, you know, uh, at least two possible ways. It it leads to sort of the those who enjoy conflict. Um, we let's call them the righteous. <laughs> it leads the righteous to prefer the society of saints to doing the difficult work of persuading those they regard as damned. And for the damned. <laughs> It has the similar effect. It says, oh, gosh, why won't these people stop persecuting me? Let me just continue to uh, to associate with the remnant. Um, but then you have this other group, which is the kind of neither saint nor nor sinner, perhaps, or I guess certainly sinner. But, you know, they, those people who just aren't, don't regard themselves as righteous because they don't know, they don't know what's going on or they don't know what the right side is. And with highly controversial, highly polarized issues like the transgender inclusion issue, like gay marriage, I think before it, um, I think actually the, the, the um, difference in how those debates sort of played out is a really um, important one. You know, it, it, activists need to be really careful about trying to shut down the debate before the work of actually convincing people who haven't made up their minds yet has happened. Um, and I worry, and this is very much where the problematic kind of thread on Twitter and then the article in the Atlantic came from, was that there is a general preference for using terms like problematic that sidestep or preclude or preempt having the argument. And, you know, it, because it's much easier to just sort of say, oh, we can all agree this is problematic and rely on kind of people's desire to conform socially and say, oh, yes, yes, we can all agree that this is problematic, even if they have no idea why the thing is problematic, <laughs> then actually doing the work of articulating um, our view and and the reasons for it, and then opening ourselves up to criticism for that view and for our reasons for it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I and mean, don't you think that based upon, you know, and you just spoke about this, based upon your reaction to your to your thread, you said was mostly mostly positive. And going back to, to the political part of this and just these discussions that we we're, we're seem to be afraid to have, and I was speaking with Yuval Levin about institutions, and I brought up something mm -hmm. that Arthur Brooks had said, and I'll, I'll repeat it to you and see what you have to say about this. Is he said that right now we're governed by the fringes. Uh, there's 15% on the right, 15% on the left, and then there's 70% in the middle that don't mm -hmm. hate each other. And when it comes to these difficult conversations, if you're talking about uh, transgender politics or something like that, that there's a there's a a large segment that are sitting on the sidelines that are interested in making a choice of what they believe or what they don't believe or what they think is a good argument or what's a bad argument, and the, the fringes are spending f far too much time yelling at the other side and and playing to their own team so they're basically they're not they're not doing anything good they're not doing anything to persuade each side is not doing anything to persuade those in the middle who might look at a, a subject differently they're basically doing it to kind of just rile up their own base so you uh, for a lack of a better word do you, do you agree mm. with that uh i think that's clearly i think that's clearly the case i mean i think that there are issues where you know up, upon which the kind of 15, 15, 70 sort of breakdown uh, looks different. Um, but I think, you know, on balance, that's that's the structure of plenty of, of, of public debates and controversial issues at the moment. And, you know, I, I don't blame young people 
uh, for thinking that this is what politics is about. Um, but I do blame not so young people and I blame professors and I blame, you know, the, the commentariat and I blame politicians for not being more truthful about what politics actually entails, which again, to appeal to Roger Williams, you know, one must go out of the world if one would not keep converse with idolaters. We are, we share, we share this, we share a country, we share a society, we share a world with people who deeply, fundamentally disagree with us. And there's a kind of, you know, nihilistic naivete about that fact that's being encouraged um, on on all sides of the political spectrum. I don't think that this is a, a sin only of the left, nor do I think it's a sin only of the, on the right. Um, you know, successful political movements rely on coalition building. And, you know, there are plenty of uneasy bedfellows in the history of successful social, so, social movements. Uh, that's an important part of the history. And, and um, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of ignorance here. And I just, I, unfortunately, I think plenty of people who have a, have, a, have a role in social prestige and privilege that follows from them being less ignorant are actually just as ignorant on these issues as, as those they're purporting to teach. All right. Well, as we as we wrap up here, I just want to ask you a question. And and, and I could be basing this on poor assumptions, which is based on your accent. I would say you were born in the United States. Is correct? Yeah, that's right. That's okay. Right. All right. So now, and 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 just for the record, uh, Teresa lives in the UK. She's she's a professor at Oxford. Is have you noticed any difference in the cultures in terms of the civility between the United States and the UK, or is it is it is it is there not much of a difference, or how how do you see it? Is it um, just kind of interested in what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a good question, and it's it's something that I've reflected on um, directly in, in you know various pieces of writing that I've done. I mean, actually, my so I'm American, but my first permanent job was in Canada, so I've actually kind of been circula- circling the Anglosphere uh, for my for my uh, academic career, and yeah, there are ways in which the 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 norms of civility in the UK and Canada and in the United States are very, very different. I mean, the most obvious example is that America has a tradition of what we might call free speech fundamentalism, which I would trace back to people like Roger Williams, who have a, you know, frankly, evangelical view about the role that <laughs> anathemas play <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in a religious or political argument. Um, and the culture in um, of kind of, of, of public debate in the UK and in Canada is very, very different. But there's a way in which I think fundamentally all three societies and many more besides are kind of, you know, although the norms and specific kind of behaviors, I mean, not behaviors, or specific uh, requirements of civility differ in each, the fundamental standard of mere civility is the operable standard in all three insofar as they are tolerant societies. And by that, I mean, they're societies that are formally committed to not only um, permitting diversity in various fundamental arenas. So in diversity in politics, diversity in religion, diversity in ideology, diversity in race, ethnicity, uh, gender, et cetera. But they're also tolerant in the sense that they're committed formally uh, to principles of free speech that are meant to permit and protect the permit disagreements about that diversity as well. So it's this kind of dual commitment to um, protecting diversity on the one hand and protecting disagreement on the other that I think generates the demand for mere civility. And I think most, most societies don't do a very good job of balancing these demands. I think most societies end up either sacrificing diversity or sacrificing disagreement. But the kind of mere civility approach that I associate with Williams, I think is the one that's best suited to preserve and protect both. And it's a kind of uncomfortable place to sit. I don't think that society, tolerant societies committed to preserving diversity and disagreement are often very sort of pleasant places to be. They're not harmonious places to be. They're not happy, clappy mm-hmm. societies of mutual acceptance and goodwill. Uh, nevertheless, I think they're really, really precious and to be celebrated as a historical achievement. And again, that's where I go back to putting on my historian's hat um, as, you know, kind of complementary to my theorist's hat. I think it's really important for political theorists to 
work with that history to understand the history and not tell ourselves kind of stories about the past designed to flatter our contemporary intuitions about what a tolerant or a civil society should look like. Okay. And so one last question. So I, I read before about how uh, you say we, we, you know, we remain committed to talking and disagreeing, not to pull our punches. I mean, not land them all at once, but if you were going to say to someone, you only had a minute to do it. And somebody said, well, how, how can I help change the culture? What, what, is, what is something small that I could do that would bring us to a more, uh, bring us to a point where mere civility is something that is, is much more wide open in our society? What could someone do? What would you say to them? So I wouldn't claim that there's a micro-political solution to kind of macro-political problems, but I do think that there are things we can do. And so, yeah, the short answer, I think, is to call out these exclusionary rhetorical moves um, when they're being made. So with the example of problematic, I say, well, if someone describes something as problematic, the next question should always be, how so? Tell me more. Why? Right? I would say the same with accusing someone of instability. Why? What do you mean? So the question asking for more information when someone has employed a strategy to end the conversation is the most straightforward way. It's sort of like slipping the knot, right? It just says, no, the conversation's not more over. I want to hear more. Why do you think that? And then the other, um, the other point I'd simply make is it's really easy to accuse other people of incivility. It's really easy to accuse other people of being uncivil or whatever. Um, but that generally, <laughs> the much harder thing is to hold ourselves to account for when we're being uncivil, when oh we're boy. short. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> the point is to focus on Focus on what you can do and what you're doing and where you could do better rather than obsessing about what <laughs> you perceive others, uh, you know, shortcomings and sins to be. Char- civility as uh, as with charity, it sort of starts at home. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. It would it'd be very difficult if I was saying, Teresa, we need to be a more civilized society. Let me tell you what's wrong with you. <laughs> respect so uh i i i agree with you there so all right we're going to wrap up Teresa bejan thank you so much uh for being a guest here on closer consideration really appreciate your time yeah thanks for having me i really enjoyed talking about it and um yeah you got me to talk about some controversial topics that i i, I don't think i've talked about in public before so um yeah it was great great to think about this with you perfect thank you mm-hmm.